Good morning. Good morning. Well, just a couple of prayer requests. Uh, Monday night, we're starting a marriage and family seminar at the prison. You know, a lot of these guys um, haven't seen some of their children for, for many years. Uh, uh, some don't get visitation. Some are planning to get married or hoping to. And so uh, we have about 90 guys that signed up for the seminar out of 1,800. So we we feel really blessed. And if you can keep that in your prayers, because that could branch off into a lot of other kinds of studies, like forgiveness and all kinds of other things that are linked to marriage and family. So if you keep that in your prayers, I appreciate that. Our topic is uh, one in, uh, about the faith of Jesus. We'll continue that series. Um, but it's one where uh, we want to study the topic of suffering, which I think is important for us as we're heading towards last day events. And to keep in mind that um, the Bible talks about suffering from a lot of different angles, but we want to go ahead and look at that. But let us pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful that you are able to uh, strengthen us and mold us and fashion us in times that are good and when there's also cloudy days as well. Father, you are the master sculptor. Um, we want to just thank you that you alone are the one who can fashion us into the image of Jesus. So, Father, have your way with us. Our light is to be our life a uh, transparent to you and guide us. May the Holy Spirit guide each one of us, whatever that path takes to us, that we may more and more, day by day, become a progressive revelation of the life of Jesus and thoughts and feelings is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. All righty, well, let's go ahead and look at our um, first slide here. So, there we go. I actually wanted to start this with uh, something that Jesus uh, knew before he became one of us. Before he became a man of sorrows, he was the co-creator, sustainer of the universe. And just think about his thoughts before becoming incarnate in human flesh, even before he took humanity upon him, he saw the whole length of the path he must travel in order to save that which is lost. Every pang that rent his heart, every insult that was heaped upon his head, every privation that he was called to endure was open to his view before he laid aside his crown and royal robe and stepped down from the throne to close his divinity with humanity. The path from the manger to Calvary was all before his eyes. He knew the anguish that would come upon him. He knew it all. And yet he said, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy laws within my heart. There's so much in that verse. He saw every insult that would ever happen to him, every, every trial, all the suffering he would have to face, a man of sorrows, before he became one of us. Yes. And the words he says, I delight to do thy will. Where, what was the delight in all this? The redemption of his people. That it was all worth it. Because if I don't come... They all perish. But if I go through this, many will be saved and be able to enjoy eternity. 
And that's a different way of looking at suffering. Suffering isn't just to help us grin and bear things, but God's able to produce out of that a harvest. So I want us to kind of keep that in mind, that Jesus saw the, the results of his life here. And this is our scripture text that Robbie read. Beloved, think not strange those fiery trials which is to try you as some as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when his, that when his glory shall be revealed you shall be glad also with exceeding joy. We're the only world that suffers. There is no other world that has fallen. We're the one lost sheep as far as worlds are concerned. We will share something in common that nobody else in the universe can share. Nobody else knows what it's like to lose your job for the Sabbath. Nobody knows what it's like to face death and to lose loved ones. No one likes, nobody understands these things like the human family. And when Jesus came here, he saw all that would happen for him. And he knew that there would be others who would go through this same life experience with still trusting God and allowing those events to sculpt their character into the image of Jesus Christ. Because with all the suffering comes comfort from God. God is the comforter. And the more that I trust him as I go through these trials the more I can share with Christ in his sufferings, and yet the more I can understand the strength, the power, the comforting power of God himself. And in that way, as Sister White wrote, we'll come closer to Christ than if we had never fallen. And God created us for fellowship. But this is why there will be some that we'll share that none of the rest of the universe can, and in that way, we are simply just part of the family of God. And this becomes the capital of the universe with a group of people who understand because their Savior understands what it's like to put on this flesh and experience trials because of truth, to experience trials because of your innocence, you see. And so we are a blessed. We don't look at our trials as a blessing, but God turns them that way. He can if we're willing to be comforted in them. Listen to this. This is Review and Herald, April 10th, 1894. One evening, a gentleman who was much depressed because of deep affliction was walking in a garden where he observed a pomegranate tree nearly cut through the stem. Greatly wondering, he asked the gardener why the tree was in this condition, and he received an answer that explained his satisfaction, the wounds of his own bleeding heart. Sir, said the gardener, This tree used to shoot out so strong that it bore nothing but leaves. I was obliged to cut it in this manner, and when it was almost cut through, it began to bear fruit. Is this a fair statement? Would you rather have a surgeon who's also faced surgery? Has also been sick to kind of understand a little bit about what you go. Not that you're wishing this sickness on anybody. But just so they can understand a little bit of the discomfort that you're going through to be able to identify with this. But Jesus is able to identify being tempted in all points as we are. Suffering more than we suffer. 
But he understands as he intercedes for us. Just knowing that. Imagine the disciples when they saw Jesus taken up into heaven. After they just seen him be crucified. After they seen all these people hounding his every step. Wanting to murder him. And then he goes through, goes through those seven unjust trials. And yet he says, Father forgive them. They saw all that. And they saw their friend Jesus, their Savior, ascend to heaven, having gone through all the suffering, and yet so victoriously. Yes. Conquering. Did that give them comfort as then they had to face these same similar trials? That they had such a friend as Jesus, who suffered before them gloriously, gave them strength. Paul would say that I might know him. Paul wanted to know Jesus, but what did he want? What did he want to know? And the power of his resurrection. How much power is that? Oh, wow. I mean, it's just. And the fellowship of his sufferings being made comfortable, conformable unto his death. Do those two things go together? Experiencing the power of Christ's resurrection and going through suffering. If I am willing to go through the grind of whatever, I don't look for trouble. But if it comes, I'm going to be able to experience the power of his resurrection. And when you taste that power, what do you want? You want to experience it again. Not because you're looking for trouble. But the way he was able to comfort. And it's like, that's okay, because now... When I meet someone who has to go through the very same thing, yes. I'm going to be a better comforter yes. in God's hands. You know, it was very interesting. There was, a, there was a gentleman at the prison, and he lost a family member. And I went to go visit him, and I saw my program aide. He's kind of like the head elder in the group. And I said, why don't you come with me? So we go in, and we meet this young man who lost a family member. And I'm doing 80% of the talking, but the gentleman who lost a family member wasn't really looking at me. He was looking at my program aide, who's an incarcerated person. Why? Because he knew he could relate to him. They had a similar life experience. And it makes a difference when people know that you've gone through something similar. That you're better able to understand, to empathize, to be there for them. Okay, And then Paul says in Colossians 1.24, who now rejoice in my sufferings for who? It's interesting. And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which would be the church, which is the church. Paul could even rejoice in his sufferings for everybody else. Because in those sufferings and in those trials, that's my education. My program talks about the university of adversity. That in that adversity, you are learning something. You're learning something for others. When you go through something, this isn't just about us, ourselves. God allows us to go through things for other people. That we might be a better comforter, a better counselor, a better this, an encourager for other people. Because these same similar experiences people all around the world will go through. And every one of these is preparatory for what's about ready to hit the fan here pretty quick. 
right? Okay. So let's talk about, there's six things I have up here about why suffering happens. And here's the first one. This is the one most everybody talks about. First, suffering is the result of sin. And that's true, right? All the suffering in our world is the result of Adam and Eve sinning, which brought suffering and death to our world. And then we could even say it take a little bit more personally, the violation of God's law invites suffering. If I keep smoking cigarettes, I smoke three packs a day, I'm increasing my risk of heart disease, right? I can see a, a direct cause and effect of breaking these laws. And it's not just physical things. If I keep thinking about negative things, what happens? Is there an effect? Yeah, I can become overly depressed, and I keep thinking about that, and eventually I wind up some traumatic stress, right? I mean, um, so uh, these breaking these laws causes that. And a person may break them, figuring, well, I don't feel any immediate effect, but it's still affecting the body. It's still affecting the mind. It's still affecting my relationships. And down the road, if I continue to be unkind to people around me, what, what's eventually going to happen? I'm not going to have any friends. They may still be my friends for a while, but this is where you're building. You want to build bridges with people. You want to be kind. You want to be encouraging. You mean, nobody says, boy, you know, I like being around Jimmy. He insults me all the time. I just can't wait to see him again. You know, nobody says that. But someone who's encouraging and helpful and so forth. But so that's not the whole truth. We can't say that all suffering is because of some personal sin in someone's life, could we? Right. There's other reasons why people do suffer. Let's look at some of this. Uh, look at this statement. Trials will come upon us that are what? Originated by who? By the prince of evil. A lot of suffering is simply instigated by Lucifer. The enemy will contend for the life or the usefulness of the servants of God and will seek to mar their peace as long as they remain in the world. But his power is limited. He may cause the furnace to be heated, but Jesus and the holy angels watch the precious ore. And to the trusting Christian, grace will be found sufficient. And nothing but the worthless dross will be consumed. And that's the blessing. That's what Paul said. A lot of his trials were the result of the devil inspiring people to make his life so difficult. But being that God's grace was sufficient as he went through these trials, what was happening to Paul? He could become more loving, more patient, more kind. You know what I'm saying? They could... Go away the dross in his life. He was actually becoming more like Jesus through things that Satan caused to bring misery in his life. Satan still causes it because he's afraid that, wow, Paul's just growing and growing. Maybe I can throw a wrench in here and make him just kind of give up. But you never give up. You just have to look at this obstacle as a way of growing. Much like you sink your roots deeper in a storm to hang on, right? You remember that story? I think it was Pastor Cassif, wasn't it? I think it was. He told anyway. Someone told a story. He lived on an island, a tropical island, and they had all these uh, coconut trees, and um, and he kind of wanted to play a joke on this one little tree that was just like this. He put his great big rock on it, and and figuring it would stun its growth, it'll never grow. And so he leaves for like 20 years, works somewhere overseas, comes back home, 
And this whole beach that was all these coconut trees, there's only one standing. Because some storm came in and wiped out all the coconut trees but one. And as he looked up in that tree, what did he see on top of that tree? A really big rock. Because the adversity of that weight helped that one tree sink its roots deeper when all the others didn't have the root, those deep roots. And that's kind of what these adversity and the university of adversity can do for us. It can actually make us stronger. Second, not all suffering is the result of personal sin, which we just read. Satan causes a lot of it. Let's read this verse. We familiar story of Job, chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now, where is this taking place? We don't know. But these are the leaders of the unfallen worlds. They were having a group meeting of which Adam would have been there, but he forfeited that by sin, right? Satan shows up, and the Lord said, well, what are you doing here? You're not, a, you're not a leader of an unfallen world. You're an angel, okay? He didn't belong at this meeting, but he thought he did because he thought he took over this world. But anyway, and the Lord said to Satan, whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job? that there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and eschewest evil. Then Satan answered, the Lord said, Doth Job fear thee for naught? Hast thou not made a hedge around him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Hast thou blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land? But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he hath. And he, oh, then Satan says, but put forth thy hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee. So, and you know this is what's going to play out in the end of time. But there won't be one person named Job. There'll be 144,000. You could take everything away from them, and they're still going to maintain their fidelity to God. But Job's the example of what really is going on in the great controversy. Satan's of the mindset, if he could take away everything you have, You'll curse God that the only reason people really serve God is because he protects them and blesses them. But take away the blessings, you take away the praise. Okay? As the one said, the rest of the story, verses 18 through 22. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, smote the four corners of the house, it fell upon the young man, and they are dead. And I alone am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, rent his mantle shaved his head, fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came, I came out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sin not, nor charge God foolishly. Who won this? The Lord did. And Job, he lost everything. He loses his family. He loses all his possessions. And then say, well, wait a minute. Let me touch his body. And then he'll curse you. Okay, I'll let you do that. But you can't take his life. So he puts these boils all over his body. He's in great pain. And even then, Job says, I will trust thee. 
Satan is completely vanquished. But you remember, friends, this is what the controversy is. We go, for some reason, Jesus went through seven unjust trials, more than any human being would face, and says, Father, forgive them, for they know what they do, know not what they do, and he dies for the sins of the whole world. And you think, well, why wouldn't the controversy just end right there? Why go another 2,000 years? Well, here's the thing. You know how long it's taken? 2,000 years for the light that had been obscured for us, this generation, because we have more light than any generation. We have everything anyone else has ever learned before us. God gave us the spirit of prophecy to increase our light manyfold. Manyfold. We are a blessed people. But with great light comes, which means what God's expecting of us is to be able to go through trials more than anyone before us. Where the whole world would be arrayed against us. And yet, there would be 144,000 who will never see death, who will take their stand, cannot be moved. And then there's a multitude who will allow themselves to be martyrs because they're going to take their stand equally, right? And not be moved. This is what you and I are preparing for. What a privileged generation we are. To have this accumulated light in a world that's only waxing worse and worse, and yet we can get brighter and brighter and brighter, understand by faith more our dependence upon God, and while trials happen, why they happen. And then put it all together and be that people that he's been waiting for for 2,000 years. He's always had an Enoch and an Elijah and a Job in every generation, but he's never had a movement like that. That's what he's looking for. So Job, victor there. The third reason. Notice what it says here in Luke 13, verses 1 through 3, about the Galileans. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans, told Jesus whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So people sacrifice these Galileans. Pilate goes out and has them slaughtered. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans, and that's why they were slaughtered, so to speak, because they suffered such things? Because people thought, well, if you're suffering, it's because some terrible thing in your life, like you're, you're worse than everybody else. But Jesus says, I tell you, nay... No, this is not why it happened. But except ye repent, you shall be likewise, you shall likewise perish. So Jesus is basically saying, kind of going back to number two, that there are things that happen that are bad that aren't based upon personal sins in a person's life. We live in a fallen world where tragedies happen. 9-11, the wars. I mean, you could think of one tragedy after the other. An airplane crash. Does that mean everybody in that plane was some terrible sinner? But it does tell us life can end very quickly. And if you look at those people as being great sinners, then now what's that tell me? If I really think that way, then I need to be what? Very repentant. Because I think that happened to because they didn't repent enough. Well, then I better start repenting of my sins, right? Yes, and then Jesus goes on into the next story, the next couple of verses, um, on the Tower of Siloam, 
or these 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them? Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall likewise perish. Which is a true statement, isn't it? If people don't know the Lord and they fall into their tragedy, their lives can be snuffed out just like that and not receive eternal life. But it's also saying that there are people who are in the Twin Towers who were believers. But their lives ended. But as Paul says, um, what is it? Um, In the body. (laughs) Absent from the body? Not immediately, not at death. But if my body dies and all my cells dies, my brain doesn't work, I don't have any thoughts. But when he just speaks and creates a new body and I got all these new living cells and a glorious new body, I'm going to have thoughts immediately. It'll be like I just got buried in the Twin Towers and my next thoughts, I'm with Jesus, even though it's 20 years later. But the most important thing is that I'm in a position that I've repented. And that's what we need to, maybe as Adventists, do a little better. We're better at taking people who've already repented and leaving them the truth. Yes. We're not as good as bringing people to the Lord. Yes. And we need to do that. Yes. Um, we had about five or so guys come to the Lord in the last couple of weeks in the prison who didn't have, have never accepted Jesus. And uh, it, it's a blessing to, in a simple way, tell people how to accept Jesus yes. as their personal Savior. The Holy Spirit's the one working on their hearts, yes. you know. The fourth, an opportunity to prove God's power. So here's John 9, 1 through 7. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while is day, and night cometh where no man can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way there, washed, and came seen. So let's look at that. The lesson of the blind man is not one of repentance, but one of opportunity. Did God cause this man to be born blind to prove that God has power? No. Why would God have to do that? All we have to do is look at ourselves, our world, the universe. (laughs) God is all-powerful. Do we need God to have someone be born blind to show that he's merciful? Well, no. How do we know he's merciful? Jesus has died for all of us, right? God is merciful. So God didn't cause this, but what God can do is he can take this tragedy, which does happen. There are people who are born blind. God doesn't seem to heal all who are born blind, does he? But there are opportunities that God then demonstrates his power and his mercy to those who are present. Because for those people who are present, they, for themselves and their salvation, need to be seen, need to see God demonstrate this. There are people 
most people believe in Jesus because of a miracle? No. But because of the word and the Holy Spirit working on their heart, right? I mean, I came to Jesus at age 20, not because I saw a miracle. You know, I didn't see a bunch of people lined up and, you know, you know I didn't see that. I believed that God loved me. I believe that Jesus died for me. And the miracles that he would forgive someone like me of everything I'd ever done. Right? No matter how many times, how many times I've done it. And so God knew the people there present. This was an opportunity to reach the people present of which many did believe. Okay? So God can take these kinds of tragedies because in this world, there are people who are born this way or that way because of sin in the world. Not because of any personal sin. Okay? Fifth. For our own benefit, sometimes God allows us to go through trials. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10, and lest I should be exalted, this is Paul speaking, above, above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I sought the, sought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore, I actually take pleasure in infirmities, and reproaches, and necessities, and persecutions, and distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is Paul saying here? That there was a danger that he received revelation after revelation and everything's going good. There are no problems. It's one miracle after the other. That he might, what might happen to him? Might become prideful, right? Let's look at the next slide here. There was that danger of Paul being exalted. Not even to himself, but by, by others. Okay? And, uh, but Paul did need something to keep him humble. And that's the question we have to ask ourselves. If something happens to me, bad, let's say I have a thorn in the fresh flesh. Let's say I can't hear anymore. Or I can't see very well anymore. And I pray, God, give him my sight back. But he says no. What if he says no? Doesn't mean that God doesn't love me anymore. What's it mean? That maybe I personally need this to become more dependent upon him. So that I don't fall into danger of thinking, wow, look at me. Right? And God in his mercy will take me and allow me to depend on him to know that his grace is sufficient. You know, Alina was sharing with me, her last name's Todd, right? A lady that's paralyzed? Erickson, okay. Perfect health? Can't do anything unless somebody helps her. A motivational speaker that encourages people who go through much less difficulties in a cheerful way. She could have said, I used to walk, I could ride horses, I could do everything, anything I wanted to do, and now I can't even move my body by myself. 
She could have walked away and said, forget the Lord then. For allowing this to happen. But it was just the opposite. I am now learning about God's comforting. Learning God's strength that I could have learned in no other way than to go through this difficult. And then God could use her to help other people who are paraplegic. Or maybe they've lost a limb, they've lost some mobility. They've gone through some tragedy themselves. And so whatever that thorn in the flesh could be, it probably could be for our good. It's not a matter of questioning God's love. It's about, well, thank you, God, for protecting me for something that I'm probably not, maybe I'm not even aware of. And that's okay. It's because God knows. He knows best. Jesus says, I'm the vine. My father's the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth much fruit. So let's just stop there. If God doesn't take us through the pruning process, are we going to bear as much fruit? No, it's actually necessary that we're pruned. Or we go through the fire of affliction to burn away the dross. Because in doing that, we actually become more fruitful if it leads us to depend more upon him. Because, you know, in the end of time, all we're going to have is our faith. Right? Then it says here in that same article that I quoted earlier, there is a constant tendency among the trees of the Lord to be more profuse and foliage than in fruit. Just as the strength and nourishment of the grapevine are taken up in abundant foliage, and the fruit is, is not brought to perfection unless the vine is pruned, so the strength of the Christian will fail of its true end unless the heavenly husband proves away the useless growth. In prosperity, the followers of Jesus often turn their thoughts and energies toward gratifying themselves to securing worldly treasure to the enjoyment of ease and pleasure and luxury, and they bring forth little fruit to the glory of God. Then the heavenly husbandman, in order to promote the fruitfulness of the branches, comes with a pruning knife of disappointment, loss, or bereavement, and cuts away the hindering growth. And so we see that lesson taught throughout nature. If God, if let's say I watched five hours a day of worldly television, and God does something in my life, and it's like, no, I've got to go to therapy now. I don't have time, and I'm learning different things now. I'm spending more time in prayer and study of the word. Am I better off? I am definitely better off. Because God's trying to take away the earthliness in me so that I'm sculpted into the image of Christ. <clears throat> Number six, this is our last one. A vicarious suffering, meaning that you are suffering for others, for the benefit of other people. So we find in Isaiah, uh, in reference to Jesus, that he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of peace was upon him, and with his stripes, we're healed. He went through all this for us. For us. Hebrews 2.18, there's many other verses. For in that he, Jesus himself, has suffered being tempted, he is able to secure and help them that are tempted. Is that a true statement? Yes. Jesus knows how to help you 
perfectly. Because he's already gone through it in this flesh. It's one of the reasons he put on our sinful flesh. So that he knew exactly what we were experiencing. Yet without sin. Okay? Jesus suffered and died for us. His death and resurrection were redemptive. So notice what Paul says here. We kind of looked at this verse uh, earlier, but not in its context. But look at it. If we continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, am, I Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you and to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his work, which worketh in me. I want to notice this statement. To whom God would make known what is the riches and the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is the most amazing mystery, in a way, for us? Well, one would be how the Son of God actually became the Son of Man. How, how the Son of God who creates the universe, sustains us, could actually be a little embryo in Mary's womb. That's a mystery. But we believe it because the Bible teaches it. But what is equally a mystery, as I'm just a human being like you, but the Savior of the world can be in me. Is that a wonderful mystery? And if Jesus is in me, then the Holy Spirit is desiring that that life in me is transforming my thoughts and feelings to follow in the steps of Jesus to be like him. And if he was a man of sorrows and he knew the tread, the path he must tread, and he came here knowing that, then Christ in me would probably logically follow also a path of what? Of challenges, Right? That that shouldn't be strange to us. If Christ came and saw the suffering and the trials he would face for our benefit, and if Christ be in me, it would be all of who Jesus is, right? Including his suffering and afflictions. So if I allow that to grow in me and bear fruit, then I would expect that I would face similar afflictions as he did. But in that, it's the mystery of the fellowship that now we have this beautiful fellowship with Christ that we share something in common that the rest of the entire universe can't experience. They can sing about it, but they can't experience because they don't live in a fallen body in a fallen world. We do. And that's part of the beauty of going through affliction is to be able to experience what Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think we got one more slide here. So when Paul was in tribulation, he was comforted by God. 
Now he desires to pass that comfort on to others. Paul was willing to suffer for the consolation and salvation of others. If I have never suffered, we tend to be somewhat handicapped to sympathize with those in difficulty. Suffering actually prepares us for what? For ministry. The more I can endure by God's grace, the more people I can help who are going through similar experiences. Before we have our closing prayer, we have a closing hymn. Remember, all are invited for our fellowship meal after the service. Let us pray. Father, when you made us in your image, you made a pledge to take care of us. Thank you, Father. And that's why we pray, Abba, Father. You are our great, loving God. Help us to be those children that you've waited for. Help us to draw closer to you, to trust you more, to have more faith. So, Father, through the trials that are ahead, we thank you. Strengthen us. Help us to help help someone else along the way. Use us in your service, Father, is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.